What I'd like to talk about this evening is impermanence and its teaching. And I'd like to say that when I began to get this talk together, I realized that actually I hadn't given a talk about impermanence probably for about 10 years. And I thought, well, why haven't I talked about impermanence for so long? I mean, we talk about it, of course, in instructions and in guidance. Why haven't I given a talk on impermanence in so long? Considering that it is so very fundamental to this practice and to the deepening and insight. And I thought, well, the reason that I haven't given a talk on impermanence in so long is not because it's particularly boring or you know, unexciting, but really because I think, well, everybody knows about impermanence. We don't have to talk about impermanence. In fact, most people would probably consider themselves to be somewhat experts in impermanence. And I thought, well, I could probably invite any of you up here this evening to give the talk. And we would probably all come up with very much the same things. We all know that everything is changing in our world. We all know that we can't rely on anything outside of ourselves for security. We all know that we can't rely on predictability, which rather undermines our desires to control things. We all know about beginnings and endings. We do all know this on some level. So I feel, well, if I was going to talk about impermanence, I'd probably get a collective groan because we would probably think, well, this is so basic. And what I would like to hear is somewhat more advanced dharma, somewhat higher dharma here. And it is true that impermanence, the understanding of impermanence, is incredibly fundamental, which is why you cannot pick up a book about meditation without seeing it written, which is why it's talked about so much on retreats. So I'm probably not going to offer you anything new tonight but instead some more reflection upon what we do already know. Now, I would like us just to reflect a little bit upon our understanding of impermanence and the application of that understanding in our lives at this point in our life. Do we find ourselves grasping hold of anything? Anywhere? Do we find ourselves ever in places of resistance, pushing things away, trying to avoid things or get rid of things? In our meditation or in our lives? If this, by some rare chance, does happen, then I think probably we can agree that there is possibly something we haven't yet gotten about impermanence. 
do we still find ourselves fearful or trying to control things, trying to create safety, security, and predictability inwardly or outwardly? And if we do this, then it's possible that although we know all about impermanence, there is some level within us that that understanding really hasn't yet filtered down to the deepest level of our consciousness in a way which actually changes our lives and ourselves. As I think it is a basic actuality that not living in accord with our understanding, not living in accord with actuality, not living in accord with what we know to be true, is truly to travel our journey in a path of conflict and tension in our lives. The deep understanding of impermanence is actually a remarkably profound insight. It is an insight which has the power to very dramatically and very immediately transform our lives, transform our way of seeing and our way of being in this world. To deeply understand impermanence does mean that the degree of pain, the degree of conflict, and the degree of suffering that we experience in our lives would be radically minimized. Understanding impermanence is also an understanding which really opens the door to understanding what emptiness, what transparency is all about. It opens the door to understanding letting go, renunciation. It opens the door to understanding selflessness. It opens the door, too, to understanding very deep levels of appreciation and sensitivity in our lives. I think we do know this. And knowing this, you know, we would probably assume that if the understanding of impermanence really can do this in our lives, then it would be an insight that we would be incredibly enthusiastic about, that we would pursue and explore wholeheartedly. Because it seems that this is an insight and understanding which truly promises happiness, and truly promises a great deal of freedom in our lives. Now there are times, certainly, when we are enthusiastic supporters of impermanence. You know, when these workmen packed up their bags today, I'm sure everybody was really glad about change. When we meet with an unpleasant mental state or a difficult sitting, or when we are in contact with a person we just re- who just really annoys us and that we dislike, we're so happy about change, about impermanence. In those moments in our own meditation, in our own lives, when we find ourselves caught up in, in terrible tension and struggle around judgment and anger, we can so quickly become very wise advocates 
of impermanence and emptiness. You know, we can become very philosophical and say to ourselves, you know, all things end, all things pass, you know, this is an illusion, it is empty, and it is bound to change. In those moments of conflict, we are very happy to acknowledge the wisdom of impermanence. And we do understand, too, that peace in our lives is not something which is dependent upon the absence of challenge, the absence of the disturbing, that peace truly is our capacity to be with what is without prejudice, that harmony in our lives, peace in our lives, is really related to the rapport, the rapport that we have with the flow of change that is happening around us and happening within us. And there are many times in our meditation and many times in our lives when we have glimpses of this harmony, when we are not trying to control, when we are not interfering with the unfoldment of the moment that we're in, when we're not resisting, not grasping. There are many moments when we sense that quality of harmony that comes with that rapport, that sense of rapport with being just with what is. And yet despite those glimmers of peace and those glimmers of harmony that really reveal to us the significance of understanding impermanence, I think it is probably also no understatement to say in many ways that we, we dedicate our lives to avoiding that understanding. Because to truly understand impermanence deeply would mean that each one of us would be really asked to re-examine our lives, how we live, where we are going, what we honor, what we emphasize. Each one of us would be asked to look again at all of that, to look at the choices that we make and what those choices reveal to us about what we honor, to look at the values we hold, to look at what we give time and energy to. It easily does happen to us that we can live our lives in a way in which we are somehow assuming immortality. We know conceptually that this is not possible. And yet so much pretense goes into believing that it is possible. There's a wonderful Indian epic, the Mahabharata, and in it someone is asked, what is the most wondrous thing in the world? And I think it's answered something like, the most wondrous thing in the world is that people can look around them and they see aging and they see death and they see loss and they see separation and they believe that this happens only to others. Much of our lives we can give an enormous amount of time and energy to getting and possessing what we want. Much of our lives we can take incredibly for granted 
the people that we care for, the world that we live in, the people that we love and honor. Much of our lives we can give to arguing, to debating, to formulating opinions. And we can give incredible energy to trying to rearrange our minds and our worlds, to suit our desires, to conform to our expectations. What is all this effort a statement of? What is all this energy a statement of? It is not really a statement of understanding impermanence. But much more, it is a statement of the ways in which we are trying so hard to make our world solid, to make things secure, to make things predictable. It is a way of living in which we, li- we look for the reliable in the unreliable in which we seek for the secure in the insecure, in which we seek for the predictable in the unpredictable, and where we look desperately for solidity in that which is insubstantial. We can go to great lengths in our lives to create a facade of living in a world which is solid and unchanging. From the extremes that people go to with cosmetic surgery and these endless ways of manipulating our bodies to try and pretend that aging is something that happens to somebody else, to the more subtle, more subtle ways in which we hold on to so desperately our opinions, our expectations, our beliefs, and our images. Now really grasping and holding really takes place for the same reasons that we find ourselves defying impermanence. Because grasping and holding gives us some reassurance about our ability to control, our ability to find continuity. Because it seems that through controlling and finding continuity in our lives, we also believe that we will find safety and solidity. We see the many ways that we do this through the investment that we might have in our thoughts and plans about the future, through the ways in which we dwell upon the past to define who we are now, to the ways in which we cling to the present, even the ways in which we hold on to the last sitting. It is gone. It is gone. Sometimes we're glad about it. Sometimes we're really not so happy about it. We actually know that none of these maneuvers that we get into will really do anything at all to stop the tide of change. But we continue to engage in these maneuvers and strategies because at least they seem to offer us the reassurance that we are actually doing something. We're actually doing something about this problem of impermanence. A little bit like the story that Anna was telling last night about Nasruddin in the tigers. At least we are doing something to keep the tigers away. Now we are, of course, I mean, it is very important not to take this too personally. We are not alone in these rituals, in these endeavors. It seems in the world almost everything is argued and debated but there's some unspoken collective agreement to collude in the avoidance of impermanence. 
Now, why is it so frightening to us? Why is it frightening to us? Why does it disturb us? The idea doesn't disturb us. We can accept and embrace the idea because it makes sense, it's obvious, it's logical, it's, ra- it's rational. The idea doesn't disturb it, but the actuality clearly does disturb us in many ways to frighten us. Because if we did really, do really acknowledge that actuality in our hearts, we would probably feel obliged to do a substantial amount of letting go letting go of our addictions to pleasure, letting go of our addictions to continuity. But there's another fear too, I think, which makes us anxious about impermanence. And it's the fear that somehow if we don't control, you know, if we're not in control of our worlds and our minds, of other people, of ourselves, that we're somehow then going to become a victim. And I think this is often what propels us into so much grasping, into so much avoidance and strategy. The feeling that if we don't control, we're somehow going to be controlled or be out of control. And then, of course, you know, our minds will really imagine all the terrible things that will happen to us if we're not in control. You know, we're probably going to be overwhelmed by our inner demons, we're probably going to be hurt, we're probably going to be taken advantage of, we're probably going to be deprived, we're probably going to be a victim. We think of all these terrible things. Then what often happens, I think, is that we see pain in impermanence. We, We see impermanence as somehow threatening us with loss with separation, with deprivation, with being out of control. And we at times have this association that impermanence spells danger, spells pain. I think it's sometimes difficult for us to really understand that impermanence is actually a, a celebration of life. That understanding impermanence is actually a celebration of life. That is an understanding that brings such incredible appreciation, where we take nothing for granted, where we assume nothing, where we hold on to nothing. It's hard for us to see that. It's no wonder then that we find ourselves struggling so heroically to find continuity and predictability and solidity. There's a story I read in the newspaper recently about something that happened in Romania. This is not a Nazrudin story about this man who, who died and he was on his way to his funeral in his coffin and, and the people who were carrying him, carrying him heard these noises from his coffin. So they stopped him, kind of frightened. They opened the lid and here's this guy knocking. Clearly he didn't want to be there. And they couldn't believe their eyes, you know. And, the, you know, he sat up and he said, what am I doing in this place? I'm not dead. And they said, but you are dead. You know, you're supposed to be dead. And they had to call two doctors to confirm that this man indeed was not suffering some kind of illusion that he was actually alive, but that he really was alive. And then it took another three weeks for for this poor man to convince the authorities that he was alive, that he, he had to go to all these offices that had already buried him and say, well, really, I'm still here. Really, it's me. I'm alive. 
And it took him several weeks to convince them that he actually was still with them. It is, uh, you know, we have a, a great difficulty sometimes in letting go of our beliefs, that they can become solid so quickly. Our beliefs about other people, our beliefs about ourselves, our beliefs about life, our conclusions sometimes are so strong that to change them sometimes feels like we're picking at concrete with a toothpick. You know, we see when we come in here how many beliefs we have about ourselves. I am. I am. And the descriptions that we hold feel so true and so real at times. What are these beliefs that you hold about who you are? How do those beliefs make you act? How do those beliefs condition the trust that you have about possibilities, about the possibilities of change? How do the beliefs that you hold about yourself condition the trust that you can actually be free, that actually you can live as a fully awake and conscious human being? How much are your beliefs calling you to constantly redefine limitation? How much do your beliefs actually summon you to accept boundaries or to accept limitation or to accept conflict or suffering as somehow being your territory in life rather than freedom or wakefulness? It is useful to think on that. It's useful to think the way in which our beliefs about ourselves form our realities, form not only our present, but also form our future. And in what ways do we actually let go of those beliefs? In what ways do we actually cease to subscribe to them? At what point do those beliefs stop being our truth that we live. Now our beliefs are based upon many things. They are based upon thoughts and feelings. Our beliefs about ourselves are based upon our memories and our past experiences. Our beliefs about ourselves are based upon the feedback we've heard about ourselves from other people. Our beliefs about ourselves are based upon experiences of pain rejection, separation in our lives. All of this, uh, all of these are kind of the building blocks of who we conclude ourselves to be in this moment. They are often very deeply rooted within ourselves. But we see too, even in coming into an environment like this, where we may know not anyone here, everyone may be new to us, unfamiliar, how often we find ourselves creating beliefs about other people. You know, that we isolate something in another person. You know, maybe we happen to be behind this person when they slammed the door once. Every time we see them, we think what an incredibly insensitive person they are. 
We may have been behind the person who got the last bread roll at lunch. Every time we see them, we think, oh, they're so greedy. <laughs> we may be in the process of already marrying somebody here because they are so wonderful. We may never have spoken to them, but we know who they are. Even when our beliefs are painful, sometimes we are so reluctant to renounce them. Because to have our beliefs in some way disturbed or challenged or overturned, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us if someone could come along tomorrow or this evening and somehow rub out your conclusions about yourself? That you got up in the morning and they weren't there. They weren't there. You weren't an angry person any longer. You, you weren't a frightened person any longer. You weren't defensive any longer. You didn't feel yourself in any way limited any longer. Who would you be? How would you know how to think about yourself? How would you know how to relate to yourself? To have our beliefs overturned in any way really means that we must open our hearts to learning, to understanding, to exploring, to being present. It really means that we must open ourselves to not knowing, to not knowing. And to be in that place of not knowing also means not to be in control. Now, no one can, of course, can actually do this for us. For us, no one can actually come along and erase our beliefs for us tonight, no matter how much we might wish for that. However, we do have within ourselves one or two resources such as inquiry and awareness that can really aid us in questioning. They did this survey, and I love these surveys when people go out and try and find the average American. You know, I'm sure there's no such thing exists as the average American, but they do all these endless surveys to find these, the average American. And when they did this survey, of a number of average Americans to find out how many average Americans had actually had a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience in their lives. And surprisingly enough, a very large number of average Americans have actually had a spiritual experience in their lives. Even more surprising is that a very large proportion of those average Americans said they never wanted to have another one. <laughs> now, why would that be, do we think? Why would that be? There are a few things I would just like you ask you to reflect upon. To reflect upon the possibility that the renunciation of control is actually an openness to learning. To reflect upon the possibility that understanding impermanence is actually to discover great happiness. To reflect upon the possibility that actually to live in harmony with the unpredictable is to live in great peace to reflect upon the possibility that to understand emptiness is not something which is fearful, but something which brings great joy. 
to reflect upon the possibility that not holding on to anything actually means a celebration of an immense freedom in our lives. What difference would it make in our lives to let go? What difference would it make in our lives to not assume that our conclusions are the truth? What difference would it make in the way in which we meet another person, in the way that we meet ourselves, not to be subscribing to images or to beliefs? Clearly this is not enough just to conceptually understand but to actually experiment with, to actually explore in our days, in our practice. Now, inevitably, as our practice deepens, whether we like it or not, we tend to get smacked in the face with impermanence. We find that no matter how much we'd like to, we actually cannot control our experience here. This is one of the first revelations of a meditation retreat. We sit down and we say, I should be so happy to be here in this wonderful place and we feel miserable. We sit down and we say, oh mind, pay attention. And it chatters endlessly. We sit down and we say, oh what wonderful stillness is possible here. And we fidget from the beginning of the sitting to the end. Control is something of an illusion. We find at times that we really have no choice about letting go. That sounds arise, we may delight in them, and they end. Sensations arise, they may be very pleasant, they pass away. Even the fantasies that arise that we absolutely delight in, it's really hard to keep them going. We may have a wonderful sitting. It's very difficult to duplicate it. We may have a terrible one. It will not happen in the same way again. What we see again and again in this practice is birth and death, arising and passing. There is nothing that is untouched by this most essential rhythm. And our sitting practice actually teaches us to understand birth and death that every beginning needs an ending, and every ending is in the process of turning into a new beginning. This is not negative, this is not positive, it is just what is. It is a teaching that shows us, reveals to us, how to be here fully. That to really be in our way, awake in our lives, we need to be here fully to let go of what has already gone by and not to be entangled in that which is yet to come. Now that letting go means letting die a lot of guilt, a lot of anticipation. It means letting die a lot of regret and a great deal of fantasy. It means being here just with what is. We do this in our practice again and again, sometimes reluctantly, sometimes afraid, sometimes apprehensive, yet we do it. And yet there is another level we need to apply this to. It is still so easy for us to hold ourselves apart from this unfolding process, 
to think, well, I am letting go of these sensations. I am letting go of these feelings. I am letting go of these thoughts. I am letting go of these images. But this is a separation that is false. How can we hold ourselves apart from this process? I, who I think myself to be, who I believe myself to be, who I perceive myself to be, I too am not separate from the process of birth and death. Here too there is no continuity. As the practice deepens, so does our awareness of change. Arising and passing can happen so quickly that the world inwardly and the world outwardly, it seems that there is nothing we can hold on to. It seems to shatter in a way that everything falls apart. And sometimes this brings up much anxiety. Sometimes it brings up feelings of despair and futility. Sometimes it makes us feel, well, really, is anything worthwhile doing? I mean, what's the point in doing every, anything at all? What is the point in creativity? What is the point in direction? What is the point in cultivating anything at all if it's just going to dissolve? But this kind of fear and this kind of despair is really a symptom of the mind which is still unwilling to let go of control that believes that life only has meaning through what we give to it. It's a reaction (coughs) of a mind where the heart is really still not open to appreciating the wonder that is revealed in this process. Birth and death (coughs) shows us emptiness. Impermanence teaches us about transparency. It is very difficult to find a center, to find an eye in this unfolding process of birth and death. It is very difficult for us to isolate any single thought, any single feeling, any single experience, and point to this and say, this is who I am. Because in the next moment it has changed. In the next moment it has gone. It is hard to find a center inwardly. It also becomes increasingly difficult to find a center ourself anywhere in the world. Certainly we see ourselves walking around and we have names for every form. We have labels, we have descriptions. And those labels and descriptions outwardly, just as they do inwardly, give some kind of impression of solidity. But it is difficult after a time to mistake a name for truth. You cannot mistake a name, a word, any word, any name for truth. There is no center in this passing show of names and forms. Understanding the emptiness of that center can have a profound effect upon us becomes really difficult to continue in strategies, in avoidance, in trying to control. So what is left? What is left when we do not control? What is left when we are not seeking strategies? What is left when we are not pursuing or avoiding? What is left is a quality of surrender. Now this is a delicate 
and sometimes a difficult concept for us to embrace. We're not talking about, you know, joining up the nearest cult, finding the nearest guru to sign up with. We're not talking about that kind of surrender. The surrender to what is. Sometimes that's bit fearful for us. We feel if we just let go, we're going to be a, somehow a spiritual victim. You know, that we'll still be overwhelmed by everything. We'll just be more enlightened about it, you know, and say, well, I'm just going with the flow, you know, or just moving along with the flow of life. But surrender is not about a spacey awareness of drifting from one object or mental state to another. Surrender is actually an expression and embodiment of great wisdom, of clearly comprehending, understanding the nature of impermanence. Surrender is a clear embodiment of the renunciation of grasping onto any object, any state, any thought, no matter how exciting it seems, no matter how much we've invested it with meaning or with pleasure, or with reinsurance, it is letting go. It is letting go of all of that investment. It is understanding what it means to be in relationship to this moment without prejudice. To allow the world, outwardly, inwardly, to arise and pass in accord with its own rhythms. Not to be in charge. Not to be making distinctions and dualities on the basis of likes and dislikes. A path of unconditionally not holding on to any prejudice. It is not just in relationship to the world of objects we are talking about. We also must ask who is making the choices, who makes the choices in our lives, who avoids, who pursues, who holds these preferences, these likes and these dislikes. If we look at them carefully, if we look at it very carefully in the day, every time we are moving towards something, every time we're moving away from something, every time we're caught up in resistance, every time we're caught up in craving or grasping, let those moments be your teacher. Let those moments Tell their own story. Listen to those moments carefully. Not trying to get out of them in order to become a Buddha. Listen to those moments carefully. If we can listen to, see those moments really with an eye of wisdom, those moments reveal to us the nature of self and the limitation, the imprisonment and the bondage of grasping of self, not to be judged but they show us the path of letting go. They show us the possibility of discovering great freedom every moment in our lives, not later on, not in the future, not after we've become a sage, not after we've joined a monastery. They show us the possibility of great freedom every moment in our lives. They are our teacher.
sense of I arises in relationship to objects. Objects are given solidity through that relationship. We say I am, I have, I know, I want, I need. This is the dance of grasping. The dance of grasping which creates the realities that we then inhabit. Surrender is a way of bringing great clarity to that dance, of not holding on to the control, the director, not holding on to the objects. We see a certain transparency in that dance. It becomes very difficult really to define what I, what I am with any certainty at all. It becomes really difficult to define who you are with any certainty at all. Letting go of that demand for certainty, we do enter into a dimension of unknowing. Dimension of not knowing. Letting go of certainty. Not interfering in any way with the unfoldment of each moment is to open to its possibilities, is to allow it to reveal to us its own wonder, its own wisdom, its own richness. I'd just like to end just to read you one thing. The great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind. Not grasping the deeper meaning, we just trouble, you just trouble your mind's serenity. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. But because you select and reject, you can't perceive its true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of things, and all errors will disappear by themselves. If you don't live the Tao, you fall into assertion or denial. Asserting that the world is real, you are blind to its deeper reality. Denying that the world is real, you are blind to the selflessness of all things. The more that you think about these matters, the farther you are from the truth. Step aside from all thinking and there is nowhere you can't go. Returning to the root, you find the meaning. Chasing appearances, you lose their source. At the moment of profound insight, you transcend both appearance and emptiness. Don't keep searching for the truth. Just let go of your opinions. May our beings live with clarity. May our beings live with wisdom. May our beings live with awareness. Yeah.